I know you have to fill up the pages in your paper, and I know you have to put in all the words and make everything sound like the action movie is dead. The action movie is not going anywhere. And I'm like, okay. Hi, friends, and welcome to episode 101 of the Assyrian Podcast. This is Steve, and it has been way too long since I've been able to host an episode. I can't think of a better way to come back and also to start our next 100 episodes than by bringing today's guest, R.C. or Robert Samo, on the show. Before I started the podcast, back in 2017, a good friend of mine named Joe Soro recommended that I reach out to Robert. I didn't know him at the time, but after doing some research, I found that he had recently interviewed Salma Hayek, Morgan Freeman, and that he had started the Geek Rage website called Fanboy Nation. Robert is a proud Assyrian, but he's also a writer, journalist, voice actor, lover of sports, a student of life, and the creator of FanboyNation.com and FangirlNation.com. He's another shining example of an Assyrian who followed his calling and gets to do what he loves. I'd also argue he's one of the best kept secrets in the Assyrian community. Listen to the interview, hear it for yourself, and then reach out to him and let him know what awesome project you are working on. On another note, if you are a fan of the Assyrian podcast, please smash that subscribe button, share the show with your friends, and rate and review us wherever you listen to the podcast. Also, do you know someone who should be on the Assyrian podcast? Are you the person who should conduct the interview? Please reach out to us and we shall get you connected. It is so good to be back with you on today's episode of the Assyrian podcast. Support for this week's episode of the Assyrian Podcast is brought to you by Tony Caligaracos and the Injury Lawyers of Illinois and New York. If you know anyone that has been in a serious accident, please reach out to Tony Caligaracos. Tony has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and a rising star by Super Lawyers Publication and has obtained multiple multi-million dollar awards. Tony can be reached at InjuryRights.com or 847 847- 9829516 And now here is one of the best kept Assyrian secrets Robert or RC Samo So I am very excited to have my friend Robert Samo or RC Samo and professionally rc samo yeah heck yes <laughs> a man of many talents and when i call you robert for mm-hmm. me that's your proud assyrian side yeah and then when i call you rc that's your comic book your writer your journalist voice actor all these cool things and yeah. for this interview so that the assyrian podcast nation can get to know you I thought we will begin with the origins. Let's talk about your rich cultural background, Lebanese and Assyrian. Tell us more. Well, other way around, because you got to start with the father first. Lovely. uh, So dad was from Goytepe, you know, immigrant from Iran, came to the United States. um, 17, you know, well, he went to Lebanon first, went to American University over there and then came to the United States. My mom came from Lebanon and they met here uh, while my dad was in college. And they got married and everything. And 
Uh, mom learned Suraya to speak with dad's family and everything. So, you know, her Assyrian's better than mine. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, born in San Francisco. Uh, I know you put on a Drew B Breeze jersey while you live in the <laughs> city, which you're lucky half the people uh, aren't going to throw rocks at you. Well, I love Drew Brees, and I thought if I'm going to do an interview with RC football jerseys right now. So yeah, your mom and dad, your dad is a Syrian, your mom's yeah. Lebanese, and, right. and they were able to merge those families and create a family. Yeah, because uh, people forget, you know, the Middle East is heterogeneous. It's not, it's not homogeneous. So everyone thinks you're either Arab or, or Jewish, and that's it. They forget you know, Assyrian, Lebanese, and then Lebanese and Syrian people are a mix of either Hellenistic background or Sudaroyo background, you know? So the, the whole influence is there. Like Egypt isn't primarily Arab, it's Arabized. You know, they have their Coptic roots, they have their North African roots, but they speak a dialect of Arabic that incorporates, you know, Arabic with Coptic. Lebanese has the, you know, the Phoenician accent in there with the, with the Arabic. Uh, Syria has, you know, the Aramaic accent with the Arabic, same with Iraq, you know, just a different dialect of Aramaic. So, you know, those of us from Iran, what I've learned is that we had it a lot easier because the Persians were so much nicer to us than the Arabs were to our, our Assyrian brethren in Iraq because they were treated as second class citizens from what I've been learning. Because people have always said, oh, you know, Aturayat Iran are this way, Aturayat Baghdad are that way. And then not really realizing until I sat down with my fr with a couple of friends that were Iraqi. And I said, okay, so what's the deal? And they're like, you know, we're treated as Nukhraya Atradiyan. You know, we're, we're outsiders in our own homeland. And I'm like, huh, because in Iran, they've always been so much nicer to us. Uh, and all my Persian friends are like, you know, at Aslat Iran. You know, you guys are the, the origins of... Uh, of northwestern uh, Iran. So it's like you belong here. And in our first few minutes of this interview, you've revealed why you're being interviewed. <laughs> <laughs> because you are someone who studies, engages, you don't take things at face value. Mm -hmm. um, you're a, uh, a student of humans. And so we're going to come back to that. But sure. I want to talk about Again, your upbringing, and you mm -hmm. speak multiple languages. What was that like? Mom speaks Lebanese, dad speaks Assyrian. It was just life, you know, it was home. So, like, I'd go to my grandparents' house, and the Persian channel would be on. But my Farsi's terrible, but, you know, I'd pick some stuff up there. I'd go to mom's side of the family. It's, you know, Arabic and French, and, you know, pick up some French stuff there. And so, back and forth, you know, there's not really that divide because, again, people didn't realize that the Middle East is heterogeneous. So, you know, you have some cousins that end up being half Armenian. You have some cousins that end up being half whatever else. And ju that's just the way the region has always been. And some people, I've, ne I've never wanted the idea of, you know, I have to identify as one over the other. Because if I said I was only Assyrian, then I'm denying my mother's side of the family. And if I said I was only Lebanese, then I'm denying my father's side of the family. And I never understood how people could do that because you're both. So you have to honor both sides of your family. And it was, you know, it wasn't a hard transition. I mean, it's really, you know, like they say about immigrant children or in the United States that they're bicultural because, you know, they have one foot in America, one foot in the old, old world. I kind of had it tricultural because, you know, there's that Assyrian from Iran side, there's that Lebanese side, and then growing up in America on top of it. So it's like, which direction am I going? You have so many cultural backgrounds <laughs> and heritages that I think if we just started naming all the subcultures that you're aware of, <laughs> right. uh, 
this will be a four hour interview uh, minimum. <laughs> I don't want to bore anybody, man. That's the, that's what I'm Heck scared. No, of. <laughs> it's, we love it. So when I first started the podcast, mm-hmm. I reached out to my buddy, Joe Soro, who I hope yeah. to have on the show. He's doing some awesome stuff. This was like back in 2017. Yeah. And I reached out to you because you know he told me to, he said, you got to reach out to him. And that's when I like saw your fanboy nation, which we'll talk a lot about. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, wow, this guy's interviewing Salma Hayek and all Arnold Schwarzenegger and all of these celebrities. And I'm like, okay, I need some tips from him on how to interview. So thank you for that. And then uh, I heard your first interview with Linda George. And I was like, what is he asking me for? He's doing just fine. Oh, thanks. No, I appreciate yeah. <laughs> that. But the other way I knew of you is I believe one of your relatives, Homer, uh, yeah, had a TV show uncle. growing mm-hmm. up in Turlock. Yeah. He had it that was always on and now you're in the show business. So how did that happen? It didn't necessarily influence me because I wasn't really aware of it at the time. You know, he was just Mamuna Homer, you know, Um, he was the influence for like dad to go to college because he was the first one that went that went to university. So then dad went to university and then everybody followed suit from there. Um, You know, with me, it was just I was always interested in the humanities and the arts. You know, I was interested in engineering. And I, w- I was heading down that way. And then I got to high school and I had one teacher. Uh, I'm not going to name his name because I don't even know if he's still alive or not. So he couldn't defend himself if he's not. But this, this guy was from the South and uh, he had two hearing aids. And then, you know, there was the book way of doing uh, uh, an equation. There was the book shortcut of doing an equation. And then there was his own personal shortcut of doing an equation. And you were tested on all three, but he'd randomly space them out in the exam. Like, you know, like the first 10 questions are book style. Second 10 questions are book book shortcut. Third, you know, third set for the final for the final piece, you know, his set. And I'm like, so I got confused with which way it was. I said, you know what? Forget math. Forget engineering. I'm, I'm going into the humanities and the arts. That was the end of your engineering career. That was the end of it. And I tried to, I was like, you know what? Next year, let's see, you know, I was teetering. And then my geometry teacher, who was a brilliant, brilliant man, uh, unfortunately was in the early stages of senility. And, you know, he was retiring that year and you could just tell that he was fading in and out. So, you know, geometry didn't go as well as I had hoped. And that was the final nail in the coffin for engineering. And teachers changed the world. And so they changed your world. They changed my world in the fact that once you have a bad experience with mathematics or science, there's no real recovery for that as a student unless you push yourself to catch up. Because if you miss a section in math or science, that's it. The rest of the year is toast. You know, history, you can come back and read four or five chapters and catch up. You know, language arts, you could do the same thing. Um, except linguistics, you know, when you're learning a new language, you, you might as well start over. Excuse me. But yeah, with math and science, if if you miss a section or something goes awry, it, it's toast and you have to start all over from that. Well, maybe it was a massive blessing in disguise because you seem to be, you know, doing really well and having a, a lot of fun in your life on this unorthodox yeah. path uh, that you've <laughs> gone on. And we'll get to that. Um, and you're someone who you don't take things at face value. It, it's hard to like, we're going through a global pandemic and I, I'm a very strange person in that, like, if everything is going too smoothly, 
I'm waiting for something to go wrong. Why is everyone so happy? Why is everyone just going with the flow of the stream and just so calm and relaxed? There has to be something up. And then when the whole world is going to hell like it is now, I'm able <laughs> to pull back and relax and go, all right, and that's it. We're going to pray. We're going to focus. And then we're going to redirect. Yeah. And so a lot of people hearing that hear kind of a old fashioned approach to some of the problems in the world. But you're not someone who's um, I wouldn't classify you as a go with the flow or, again, taking things at face value. You have your bachelor's in journalism, which mm -hmm. forces you to you know, ask hard questions, study, develop a narrative. But then you also have your master's in theology. Um, and you got your master's in theology from a Pentecostal school, right. which is not how you identify now in your religious no. kind of background. No, I, I identify as an Orthodox Christian. Um, you know, I, I don't necessarily put the distinctions between Eastern Orthodox, Oriental Orthodox, Nostonai or whatever else, you know, uh, those divides came upon misunderstandings. And then hubris is what kept those divides going. Um, unfortunately for the church to reunify, you have to wait for Constantinople and Alexandria to get their act together before they can even talk to Rome to figure out what's going to happen over there. And so, you know, 1700 years of disagreement. And unfortunately, you know, as much as we talk about being humble and being calm, the church is full of prideful people and pride always comes before the fall. And unfortunately we need to, uh, figure out how we're going to reunify the church in one regard or another. That's one thing I envy about Protestantism in a sense, is that a lot of Protestant sects, especially low, low church Protestantism will go, oh, you're already a Christian, pack it, you're one of us. One thing that worries me about that is that sometimes it allows for apostates to invade the church and have their own you know, weirdo ideologies that's never corrected. And so somebody like, you know, and I don't wanna say weirdo ideologies and then mention Two other sects that claim to have ties to Christianity because it's not fair to them. Um, but, you know, ha have ideologies that don't necessarily fit in with Orthodox with a small O uh, Christian ideals, you know, yeah. like, you know, the like the Gnostic theologies. We'll pick on them because they're seven, 1700 years removed. So so wait a <laughs> second. Uh, people who are listening to the Syrian podcast, you know, they may not have studied theology. They're not going to know who the Gnostics are or apostate or, you know. <laughs> Sorry. Um, apostates are people that have views that are similar, but deviate too far from the correct ideology. Like, And I picked on the Gnostics. Gnostics were some of the earliest apostates in the third and fourth century where they believe that, you know, uh, in the infancy gospel of Thomas, which was a book that was eliminated from the Bible, Jesus was a bad kid. He killed, he killed some child that bumped into him. And then the idea that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene and, you know, all that stuff. So that falls outside of the realm of the view of Christianity of a, of a celibate Messiah. Right. And, and so you're obviously someone who has looked into all these things and you had to probably hold tension between your own Orthodox background mm -hmm. and then also like going to a Pentecostal school. So Share with us what was that like for you growing up in a traditional Assyrian home and then being embedded at Vanguard University for a master's degree in theology that's a Pentecostal school. 
Um, I got lucky because, you know, I have relatives that are Protestant, that are Catholic, that are Orthodox, that, that are all over the place, but still within the realm of Christianity. So it was easier for me to go to a Pentecostal school in, in regard to that I had respect for other branches of the Christian faith. Um, but the first day of graduate school was funny because this woman had come up to me and she said, so you're Orthodox? I said, yeah. And she said, so are you pre or post? And I was completely confused by this. And the professor is about three or four feet away from me. And I could see him inching away from the conversation, but still remaining in earshot. And I said, pre or post what? And she said, tribulation. And I said, okay, I'm not familiar with this terminology. So please explain, you know, this ideology of yours to me, because I want to make an, an educated guess, or I at least want to have some information before I say yes or no, because I can't say yes or no without knowing what's going on. And so she's explaining what tribulation is to me. And she's explaining this thing called the rapture where Christians will be whisked away before the end of, before the end of time or where Christians will suffer and endure and then be part of final judgment at the end of time. I said, well, from what you're explaining to me, I have to say I'd be post-tribulation because, you know, the book of Revelations tells us that we will suffer and endure. You know, if all our saints in the church have suffered, if our own Lord had suffered, who am I not to suffer for Christ? Why do I get a magical pass? And she looked at me and she said, and you call yourself a Christian and walked away. And I looked at the professor, I goes, what was that? And he said, don't worry about it. We'll get to it, you know, later in the semester. It's not your theology. You don't have, you don't have to freak out. And I was like, okay, but it was just a strange conversation to me. But what I learned from the Pentecostals more than anything, what I, what I recognize more so in the Western churches, so Catholic to Pentecostal, and those are two extremes, but on the West, is that Catholicism tends to be very more rule-centric and legalistic. And Pentecostalism tends to be far more spiritual-based. You know, so I envy the level of spirituality that the Pentecostals would have. And that's where I kind of see orthodoxy had fallen in because there's a spiritual aspect referring to the mysteries of God because we can't explain how Holy, Holy Communion becomes the body and blood of Christ. And I do like the structure of the Orthodox Church, which is similar to Catholicism with a liturgical calendar, not just, you know, it's Gash's turn to go, oh, I'm inspired to talk about this this week. You know, like there, there's a set theme to it. So that's where orthodoxy to me kind of fell in the middle of the two. But um, yeah, it was an interesting experience. It was uh, it was a very good experience and it was eye opening. And it showed me that um, not one denomination is 100 percent right and not 100 one denomination is 100 percent wrong, but that we could truly learn from each other to try to reunify the church. Yeah. You know, and the thing that stands out to me about you is you are a critic and we're going to get to that, <laughs> but you're also curious yeah. because, and, and the reason why I say that is because most people would not survive a theological education for more than a month if they weren't ready and willing to, to ask questions, to mm -hmm. challenge themselves and to be curious, you know, to have that sort of childlike I'm going to ask, I'm going to learn here, not just find things to attack. Right. Um, and I think that if you would have gone to an Orthodox uh, seminary, you may have missed, you know, you may have missed out because yeah. you, you then didn't get this diverse, broad experience of, of that woman having that random conversation <laughs> and pretty much telling you you're going to burn in hell. Right. <laughs> um, right. And you know, it, it was, it was funny, but 
uh, it happens. So. <laughs> yeah. And, and so when I think about you and your Syrian mm -hmm. strong heritage and then your theological, your religious, your studies of life, mm -hmm. that then takes me to the other side of you, which is the RC Samo side. Right. <laughs> and to get us into the fanboy and fangirl nation side, I uh -huh. wanted to read the bio from your website. <laughs> okay. And then we're going to ask questions about what this all means for some of us who aren't familiar. Sure. Um, RC began his journalism career in 1996 as a college freshman. Uh, he has published everywhere from Pro Wrestling Illustrated to the Oakland Tribune and Orange County Register. His vision for Fanboy Nation was to return a sense of traditional journalism to a world full of sensationalism and geek rage. <laughs> If you hadn't noticed, RC really hates taking selfies, but loves comics, animations, films, and MMA. What is geek rage? Um, geek rage is where you're not happy with anything, but you still will support the product, which confuses me more than anything. Um, this all came about when I was in graduate school and I was working at a comic book shop that's no longer there, unfortunately, called Comic Universe. And um, they're like, oh, you have to check out this site and or whatever else. And they'd post stuff like, oh, we have the exclusive trailer to X movie. And you're like, OK, cool. And then you click on it and they're like, click this link. And I was like, well, I just clicked the link to your site to see what the exclusive trailer was. And then it was like, let's say Thor. Right. And then it took me to the official Thor Marvel website where the trailer was. Well, what did I need you for? That's not an exclusive. The exclusives on on Disney and Marvel sites, not on your site. Clickbait. Um, exactly. And that drove me crazy. Um, the other one was like, somebody's like, you know, they'd, they'd get a byline and then they'd write one paragraph and then copy and paste the entire article from, say, the Hollywood Reporter or Variety. So it'd be like, you know, blah, 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 one paragraph, according to the Hollywood Reporter, and then it'd be the rest of the article from the Hollywood Reporter. Well, I don't need you. I need the Hollywood Reporter. And so I was and I was in graduate school and I said, you know what, if I'm ever going to go back to journalism, let me have fun with it. And so the name Fanboy Nation came about. It took three years to get my trademark from the federal government because there was another site that was iFanboy who recently changed their name. I don't remember what they changed it to. So sorry, guys. Um, and they said we were too, too similar in our name. So it took three years of me fighting to get get my name to finally get fanboy nation uh trademarked and then after that um once i got the kinks out of fanboy nation we started fangirl nation because uh men are are far easier to please aesthetic wise you know to to the design of a sign or certain glitches than than the female fan base would have been at that time anyway and so we got the glitches out of fanboy nation and then we launched fangirl nation just so we figured out the SEO stuff and everything else. So everyone at Fangirl Nation, Victoria Irwin, Samantha Katz, Je Jessica Greenlee, everybody else over there, they're, they're fantastic in what they're doing and putting together. Uh, they've built their own fan base and I'll chime in every once in a while, but it, it's virtually self-autonomous. And uh, so your desire to create Fanboy Nation came from recognizing that like when it comes to geek rage, which you still haven't defined, I want you to tell us <laughs> You said it was like when you don't like something and you, you still talk about it or? Par partially, you you still buy into it. Uh, okay. 
I I'll give you an example. I was at a convention a couple of years ago, and this is or closer to about five years ago. So when the site was just getting just getting going, and someone recognized me from another convention, and this is when we were in I was in Georgia. I wasn't even in California, and somebody recognized me, which blew me away. And they said, we need you to settle an argument for us. And I said, this is not going to be good because there's no right or wrong answer. And someone asked me to settle an argument between uh, whose fans were more loyal, fans of Star Trek, which are called Trekkies or Trekkers, and they'll argue with themselves about that, or Browncoats, who are fans of the show Firefly. And uh, I said, well, that's easy, Trekkies, you know, and I started walking away, and the guy grabbed me by the crook of my elbow like he was my father. Like you remember when your dad would grab you by the arm and, and right. tug you back, and you're like, wait a minute, I'm in trouble? And I just looked at this guy. I was like, you're not my dad. Let go. And so he's like, how can this? And he's just yelling at me and all this stuff. And I said, bro, that's just my opinion. You know, you don't like it. Don't agree with me. And then he's like, well, F you and your site. And, blah, blah, blah. and I was like, OK, you want to play? Let's play. And I had my geek rage moment of telling him that Trekkies <laughs> were more loyal because they created their own language, you know, based on based on a made up language in the series. They have, you know. 15 movies and a hundred different books and comic book series and all this stuff. And that guy over there could probably, you know, tell you what's going on in every single series in that made up language. You guys had 14 episodes and a crappy movie that opened Friday morning and closed Friday afternoon. So don't give me this garbage that you guys are that loyal. So that's my moment of geek rage and letting them have it, which I felt so guilty for, for like the rest of the convention, because you know, okay, the the guy got under my skin, but it was one of those things. And with geek rage, it's something that gets under people's skin that like they just have to complain about. Like Star Wars, for example. I used to love Star Wars. Love the first three movies that we grew up with. You know, special editions came out. People didn't like them so much. Prequels came out. They didn't like them so much. The new ones came out. People didn't like them so much. And all they did was complain about them. I said, well, why do you keep going? Well, I love Star Wars. Well, no, you don't. You love complaining more than you love Star Wars. So geek rage comes comes from something like that. Yeah, I liked what you said about how people will complain, but then they'll still go watch the movie. Right. Their wall. They don't honor their wallet the way they honor their opinion. Right. Um, but, uh, it, it's so a weird sense of loyalty. A lot of us grew up with those kinds of arguments and conversations. Oh yeah. Uh, who's a better running quarterback, Randall Cunningham or Michael Vick? Um, right. You know, even with the Star Wars, I remember, I think in like episode seven, uh, one of the stormtroopers was one of the James Bond characters. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, she was um, Captain Phasma. She was from uh, Game of Thrones. Oh, is that right? Yeah. There might be yeah. another one that was in James Bond, but that's the one everyone complained about because, you know, they put her in the movie and then you never saw her face in the movie. <laughs> Yeah. And, and those are the kinds of things that like, there are people who are having four hour conversations, debating these things down to the last dreg, every point there is to be made. And you created like a huge site that's just focused on this very niche uh, conversations. Yeah. Well, we started with comic books because, you know, Disney wasn't, you know, you couldn't have a blank homepage and go up to Disney and go, hey, I want to review your movies. They'd be like, yeah, 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 get out of here, you know? So I went through the back door of entertainment with comic books because comic books is still 
considered a lower form of entertainment, even though virtually every movie we get, including some classics like Road to Perdition, are all based on comic books. And so we went through the back door with comics and then we worked our way to uh, to animation, got in with Disney for films and everything once they saw we were covering animation. And I was one of the first sites to cover mixed martial arts. Like I made the announcement and everybody told me it was a stupid idea. There was no crossover. You know, why would you even think that? And so I made that announcement on, I, it was like a Tuesday. And that Friday... Um, and it ended up on Inside MMA, which was a show on Access TV. And Boss Rutten and Kenny Rice were, were talking about it. Uh, the old Joe Palooka comics from the 1930s and 40s, where he was a boxer, got reimagined in IDW Publishing as a six-issue MMA series. And I just looked at everybody and said, so where was I wrong? You know, so tell me there's no crossover. I love, um, <laughs> and that's one of the things that stands out to me is like, you then connected comic books. So so in some ways, you know, in all the different mm -hmm. fields we're in, what I'm hearing from you is that if you want to be in entertainment, you know, understand <laughs> comic books. Right um, now, yeah, definitely. And it's funny because uh, I was a huge fan of the Ninja Turtles growing up. And I never forget when I, like, I Googled or I found an old Ninja Turtle comic. And I was like, wait, they're, they're all wearing the same color bandana. Right. Like what happened to the red and the blue and the orange? And who are the Ninja Turtles? Who was the Shredder and Crane? Why wasn't Crane in? Why was Crane in the movies? But then the early cartoons, he wasn't there. And what planet did he grow up on? Right. So this is like your field of expertise. Kind of, yeah. Like I, I've forgotten more the, than uh, than I still remember at this point. But yeah, it was all that stuff that you had to learn. Um, you know, Kevin Eastman lost a fortune when he sold the rights to, or when he eventually sold off Ninja Turtles and eventually got the rights back and everything else. Um, you know, Ninja Turtles was its own beast that came out of nowhere. Wait, you know? so someone sold Ninja Turtles. Well, someone, uh, one of the co-creators, you know, it sold, sold it. Yeah. And then bought it back. He eventually was able to get it back, you know? Um, but yeah, it was, it was a small fortune, you know, those cartoons came out of nowhere. The funny thing about the cartoon is my friend Lisa Johnson, uh, she runs a site um, at home. I believe it's at home in Hollywood. And Lisa, if I got that wrong, please forgive me. But I had met her at the on the Fox lot. And we saw this horrible, horrible movie that I can't even mention its name because it was just that bad. And so everyone's quiet leaving the theater. And I'm, you know, I strike up a conversation and I whisper to her. I was like, was I the only one that thought this was bad? And she said, oh, thank God, I thought it was me. <laughs> and I said, okay. And um, I, was, I was talking to Lisa, and she was asking my age and everything else. And she's like, did you grow up liking the Ninja Turtles? And I said, yeah. And she's like, you know, my husband James is the one that sang the theme song in the cartoon. Oh, my gosh. And I'm not even looking at Lisa. I'm looking, like, right through her. And she's like, are you okay? I said, Forgive me, but I'm trying not to sing the theme song out loud. Exactly. It's in my head. <laughs> I love that theme song. Yeah. yeah. So wait, her her husband sang it. Yeah. So you know when you hear the intro to the yeah. to the Ninja Turtles cartoon, yeah. that's her husband James singing it. Very cool. And I, for for those of you that are listening to this, 
Here's what you have to know. I pulled up Ninja Turtles randomly. I just remembered the Ninja Turtles. Right. But if you're hanging out with RC, you can bring up the Smurfs, Donnie Darko, My Secret Identity, Small Wonder, uh, MacGyver, any Transformers uh, thing that's come out, uh, Superman, like third edition, Marvel <laughs> Comics. This dude knows not just tell you like that was a good episode he'll be like did you notice the socks did you notice the socks that the character was wearing in that third episode uh, i've had those moments and so uh lisa lisa's name is lisa johnson and you know she the, she still goes by her main name professionally her husband is james mandel who who did the uh, ninja turtles theme but uh yeah you know i i gotta give my friends credit so well, um, so when we go to fanboynation.com and fangirl nation, one of the things I see is you've got XFL, UFC, <laughs> podcasting, movies, cartoons, actors. Man, I can barely keep up with the New Orleans Saints <laughs> and like, oh, they they might trade this one player. How do you keep up with all the different sports and artists and groups? You know, the guy the guys on staff Kevin Phoenix, Alex Hughes, Angelo Augustine, Sean Mulville, Carl uh, Carl Jansen, everybody that's involved with us, they they keep everything alive. Michael Colbert, um, you know, we're just going through the through the stuff that we are most interested in, and you know, we keep it afloat that way. I thought the XFL was was going to be fun. Unfortunately, they just filed for bankruptcy because of the global pandemic that we're facing. Um, I thought they were going to last a minimum of two seasons, this incarnation, just because they had a better uh, game plan than the AAF did. Um, but unfortunately, things work out the way they did. And I spoke to Mandy Rose uh, the other day, who's a WWE superstar, and she was a WBFF uh, bikini champion. And I had joked with her, I was like, does this mean that Vince is going to bring back the WBF, the World Bodybuilding Federation that he tried to make in the early 90s since the XFL is now on the way out? So, Man, I yeah. never knew there was a bikini championship or bodybuilding championship. <laughs> so when we talk to RC, we don't just hear about like WWE. We get to know like the inner workings. And you're someone who you like to be on your own. Yes, you can be an extrovert and like right. go and interview uh salma hayek and raquel welsh and morgan freeman but then you're also someone that's like all right humanity just stay away from me <laughs> right um, tell us about that balance of introvert and extrovert i had to compartmentalize it between professionally and personally so like you know we're talking about me personally as robert samu you know a syrian lebanese guy um Personally, outside of Fanboy Nation and Fangirl Nation and voice acting and all that stuff, I am the most boring person you will ever meet. Like, <laughs> you, <clears throat> like if you sat there and you just met me and it had nothing to do with work, you're like, God, this guy is boring. He wants to sit home. He wants to read. He wants to watch cartoons. He wants to be in his pajamas the whole time. Ah, do I got to go somewhere today? You know, like, so Robert Samuel is boring. But RC Samo is sitting there and it's like, oh, yeah, sure. I'll go to the Critics' Choice Awards. You know, I'm a voting member. Oh, you know, uh, International Animation Film Society. I'm a member of that. Sure. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a screening and a Q&A afterwards. I, I got to go check that out. Um, you know, XFL game. Sure. I'll go hang out in the press box and whatever else. I'll, you know, well, 
even boring Robert Sama would sit there and jump at the chance to talk to Sama Hayek. So that, that doesn't count, but uh, you know, well, that, that sort of thing. And that's, that's another, you know, that um, I'm glad you have developed that for yourself. It's not a sense of bipolar schizophrenia, mind you. It's just car- compartmentalizing my life. Yeah. And, and you're aware, you're yeah. aware of your own limitations, your own strengths. And, you know, what's amazing is just if someone goes and scrolls through your Instagram, mm-hmm. they see everything we're talking about. You know, they see a picture of Homer Simpson. <laughs> then they see something about the Atiku, Akitu. They, then they see something about the Akitu Festival. Right. Uh, they see a lot of religious icons. Then they see you, you know, publish an article about WrestleMania. And then you've got sumo wrestlers and a green skin yeah. and bodybuilding. And you've got a picture with... Dana White. So I don't know how you connect with all of these people. Keep putting out this amazing content. It's got to be a part of who you are, like how you're wired. It's part, all right, full disclosure. I get bored super easy. So to do a nine to five job where I'd have to be at a desk filing report after report after report that I could be done with all of them between 8 and 10.30 and still have to sit there till 5, I would lose my mind. Because if all I had to do was sit there and fill report after report after report, and I know that like if I started at 8, I could be done with every report filled out by 10.30 and then still have to sit there till 5 and pretend to look busy because I'm on salary, I would lose my mind. You know, I wouldn't know what to do with myself. I'd be so bored. Am I going to play solitaire? Oh, I got to close this window because this boss came by or whatever else. I, I would go crazy. So, you know, I couldn't just cover MMA. Like, I respect Ariel Hawani, who covers 90% MMA or Luke Thomas and those guys. But, like, okay, I had my MMA conversation. I had my fill of MMA news for the day. I don't want to repeat that conversation for the next three hours on a radio show. Um, and that happens with a lot of talk radio, you know, in LA, you're stuck in traffic the whole time. So like hour one is the same as hour two, hour two is the same as hour three. You're just taking different callers, but talking about the same subject on whatever radio station, whether it's, you know, right wing or left wing. And I, I just lose my mind with that. So I have to have this eclectic taste because I just get so bored, you know? Okay. You know, I read two comic books today. Let's go watch a French film or, or whatever. Yeah, no, you've got awesome. you've got such a diverse perspective. Um, and I've heard you say one time in describing a UFC fighter, you said he's trying to be a Republican Conor McGregor. <laughs> oh, uh, Cody Garbrandt. Yeah. Is that who you're referencing? Yeah. When I heard you say that, I thought I've never described someone <laughs> as a political party mixed with this Irish <laughs> UFC fighter. And this dude's like theological background and journalism background and then his general personality is pretty cool, man. Uh, I've calmed down over the years. I used to, you know, I used to be a lot more high strung when I was younger. And then as I got older, I was like, you know, you got to calm down a little bit. You're going to give yourself a heart attack or unnecessary stress for no reason. Would you say that your multicultural Assyrian Lebanese upbringing along with your education, you know, it's what informs the way that you speak of things and report on things these days? I'd say it has to, because 
you know, they're two very ancient cultures that mirrored each other and ran parallel with each other for the past 5,000 years. That, you know, there's going to be overlap and there's going to be crossover, but, you know, the Assyrians uh, and the Babylonians created what the foundations of Western civilization and Hammurabi's codes and the first edict of laws. And then, you know, the Phoenicians were the first seafarers and traveling across the Mediterranean. And, you know, there, there's even some evidence that they came all the way to the United States before the Vikings even landed there. So this notion of adventure and seeking, whether it's theological knowledge, spiritual knowledge, uh, just the workings of the world. You know, the, I mean, the Assyrians, we were our astronomers were the first ones to figure out that the Earth was round and the Earth rotated around the sun. This is 5,700 years ago. Where, where Babylonian astronomers figured this out. So, you know, I laugh when they say, oh, the earth is flat. And I'm like, no, 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 no. We have evidence from, from before Christ was even on this earth that, that, you know, we knew the earth was round and rotated around the sun. Yeah. You know, so if I don't know where we came from, how do I even have an idea or a vision to where we're going? Yeah, and and so you have honored where you came from. Um, and so I wanted to now talk a little bit about uh, all these people you've interviewed and just what that's been like. What was it like to talk to Morgan Freeman? Morgan Freeman is amazing. You know, I mean, you and I are old enough to remember the electric company where he was easy reader. And he's still that slick and still that smooth and calm. And then don't forget with uh, with that series um, that he did from going to various religions, In Search of God, I think it was called. Mm -hmm. uh, season two, he went to uh, he went to Turlock, and he went to Mar Eddin and talked to a couple of Assyrian immigrants over there. So I love how you uh, follow all these actors, and we'll talk about yeah. some Assyrians that are in the arts that are notable, but. Mm -hmm. Um, is it true that you pissed off Arnold Schwarzenegger once? <laughs> I, I did. Yeah, I, I, uh, I, he misunderstood my question and I got yelled at by the former governor of California, which is still kind of cool because I got yelled at by the former governor of California. Um, his movie Sabotage had just come out and this is on the incline of the superhero movies. You know, I think uh, this is 2014. So this is just as uh, the Marvel movies are taking off with phase one. And I had asked him, I said, Mr. Governor, as you've noticed, the superhero movie trends have taken over the action genre. Is there still place in, in the action genre for traditional movies like this? And he just, you know, I said, especially since you've been in a superhero movie, you know, he played Mr. Freeze in, uh, in uh, Batman and Robin. And he's just like, I know you got to fill up your pages and, you know, with with your paragraphs and whatever else saying action movies are dead. There's no room for them. The action movie is always going to be here. It's not going anywhere, you know, and you can print that. And I was like, all right, governor got <laughs> mad at me, but sure. <laughs> so. Can you do a, can you do an impersonation of what he said to you? I know you have to fill up the pages in your paper and I know you have to put in all the words and make everything sound like the action movie is dead. The action movie is not going anywhere. And I'm like, okay. So <laughs> that's my best Schwarzenegger. I got to work on that one. <laughs> Good job. Good job. Way to go. You don't feel uncomfortable talking to these super famous people. 
Sometimes it, it really depends. Um, has anyone you know, really got, have you ever like, who, who have you gotten most nervous going to interview? Uh, let's see Raquel Welsh. Cause she's a mega star and her assistant scared the hell out of me. Um, what did the assistant do? She just gave me this look that like, uh, you know, when, when there's a scary nun that everybody's scared of at church, right? Yes. she kind of gave me like one of those scary nun looks and I got, I got really uncomfortable. I'll send, I still have to send you the video because you could see me like looking kind of weird in, in the interview, but it was, uh, you know, I got one of those looks and I was just like, Ooh, please um, send it to us. We want to post yeah. it. <laughs> the funniest one was Dietrich Bader. Who's on? Who's starred on the Drew Carey show? Is the is on American Housewife right now? We were at the Annie Awards, and um, Kevin Michael Richardson, amazing voice actor, does everything. Was Cleveland Brown Jr. on, on the Cleveland show? He was Kilowog in the Green Lantern series, and a million other things. And I just you know, his his resume is too numerous to list. So I'm talking to Kevin, and. Uh, you know, he had just done the voice of Kilowog for me in the interview. And so I'm talking to Green Lantern and following him is Dietrich Bader, who had just ended his stint as Batman in Batman Beyond. So basically, I'm getting the Justice League as this is going out. So as I'm, in, you know, as I finish my interview with Kevin and I start interviewing Dietrich, I kind of fan. Well, I didn't kind of I totally fanboyed out, you know, that I'm talking to Batman right after I talk to um, talk to Green Lantern. And then when I went to apologize to him for fanboying out, I fanboyed out again. <laughs> so that, that was the most awkward situation. I can't imagine, man. I mean, I get nervous doing Assyrian podcast episodes because you just want to honor that person and make sure you speak to their life. Now, since we're on the Assyrian podcast, right. who are some notable Assyrians in the arts that most Assyrians don't know about? Uh, let's see. F. Murray Abraham, people forget he he's Suraya. Um, Terrence Malik, you know, I, I totally forgot he was a Syrian, and I was watching his movie A Hidden Life a, a couple of weeks ago. Everyone knows Benny El Dariush, uh, who's a Syrian uh, MMA fighter. Um, Rhonda Marcus, she's Chaldean. I got to interview her, which was funny because I was losing my voice, and so it was very raspy. And apparently I sounded like her uncle when I called because she was like, you know, I have an interview in 15 minutes. Can I? I was like, I'm the guy you're having an interview with. <laughs> you know, my voice is gone. So I talked to Aranda. Um, oh, man. You know, there's uh, Paul Neeson. I think he was at Sony. I don't know if he's still there or not. You know, we have Assyrians in the arts. But, uh, you know, Andre Agassi, people forget that he's half Assyrian, half Armenian. Adoni Ishu, who's in Chicago. He's been on every one of the Chicago shows on NBC. And then David Armstrong, whose mom's a Syrian, and he was the director of uh, photography for the first six Saw movies, and he's made his own films and everything. Da David looks 100% Assyrian. Like, if you looked at him, and then you saw his driver's license, and it said Armstrong, you're like, get out of here, Armstrong. What do you change it from? You know? Yeah. And it's like, no, like, that's his real last name, but he looks 100% Assyrian. Very cool. So I think, you know, hopefully if any of the Assyrian podcast hosts are listening or actually we just need to get you to start interviewing <laughs> those people and we can throw it on the Assyrian podcast. I'll, you know, what? I haven't talked to David in a while. I should give him a call. But yeah, if I can get David to do an interview with me for you, I'll, I'll definitely send it your way. 
we'll set you up to be able to do that on the, but you, I know you got your own stuff. Now, one of the hardest things in life, in my opinion, is to give feedback. Okay. Um, it is very challenging to share with someone else your opinion mm -hmm. of their work. Okay. And the opposite of that, it's also really hard to be open to and receive feedback. Mm -hmm. You are a critic. Yeah. You are paid to watch movies that have $200 million budgets. Right. You're, you've been to Critics' Choice Awards. Mm -hmm. You obviously have your own fanboy nation. And what makes you qualified to provide this feedback? A lot of research goes into it. A lot of cultural understanding of what's going on. Um, I will never say I have my finger on the pulse of trends or anything like that, because that's just not who I am. If it was, I would have known. This is how generally I know something is going to be an amazing idea, is if I think out the gate, it's stupid. Like social media, I thought was absolutely stupid. Like when Friendster hit, that was the first social media one. And my friend's like, oh, you got to get on Friendster. I was like, why? And like, so we can talk online. And I'm like, I'm talking to you now. You live like three blocks away. What do I need the stupid Friendster thing for? You know, and then MySpace took off and then Twitter came out. And you're like, you have to give your opinion in 130 characters. I was like, this is the stupidest thing on the face of the planet. You can't give a solid and concise argument in 30 characters. And sure enough, Twitter is one of the biggest sites in the world. So if I think your idea is stupid, it's going to hit and hit big. Um, yeah. So I'll never say that I'm on the, you know, I have my finger on the pulse. But I know art. You know, I've studied art history, I've studied journalism, I've studied theology and, and history itself and people and human nature. And I've edited, you know, two master's theses in psychology. So I understand what's coming and what's going. And, you know, um, I think the two greatest critics that ever lived in the United States were Roger Ebert, because he actually made a film. He wrote, you know, Valley of the Dolls. And so he had more credence than anybody else because he was on both sides. Not only was he a script writer and had a movie made, but he was a critic. So I always felt that he had the most, uh, the most cachet in what he said. And then Leonard Malton, who's the nicest man on the face of the planet, even if Leonard doesn't want to talk to you, he'll still talk to you uh, because he's a film historian. And then, you know, uh, Jerry Beck, who's an animation historian, those three guys, I see as like the cream of the crop because they've done their research. They've lived it and studied the archives and everything else. So, you know, I aspire to be like that. So you have to study, you know, yeah, your opinion is your opinion. Like I didn't like Last Jedi, the, you know, what is it? Episode eight of Star Wars. A lot of people loved it. Okay. But Ryan Johnson made over a billion dollars for, for the Star Wars franchise. So is my opinion going to hurt his feelings that he made a billion dollar movie? No, no. Yeah. You know, um, my criteria is also different from other film critics in that um, I don't one, I don't take myself too seriously, but also independent films. I judge on a different criteria than I do a big budget blockbuster, you know, um, transformer, the transformers movies are all $300 million plus films. The star Wars movies, all $300 million plus films. Marvel movies, same thing. But if you made an independent film for $2.5 million 
and you shot it in 18 days, you know, one, I'm already impressed that you were able to pull off a 90 minute movie in 18 days. And so my criteria is, okay, they didn't have the budget for this type of effect or whatever else. So I'm going to be a little more lenient and focus more on your creativity and what you were able to pull off with your limited budget than whether you had, you know, unlimited funds and were swimming in Scrooge McDuck's giant uh, coin bin and could have given us the world and everything we asked for and still gave us a stinker. Like I have no, you know, that bugs the hell out of me when you had $350 million and a year and a half to make the movie and you, and you still gave us garbage and that's not fair to the movie going audience. A lot of critics focus on, you know, what the people in LA, San Francisco, New York, Seattle will like. I'm more worried about the person that's in Wyoming that is living a regular life and then is shelling out 12 to $20 to go watch some movie that they might not like because they were told it was good by people, you know, big city art, art people that they're going to like it. And they're like, eh, it didn't connect with them. So the way I watch a movie is what about that guy in that small town that's spending his hard earned money where it's like, you know, one movie ticket without concessions is two hours of work for him. Mm -hmm. So I want to be fair to those people, not just, you know, people going to the theaters with the recliners and the, you know, Dolby surround sound and everything else. Yeah. And I think that's obviously a perspective uh, that the world needs. We need more of that. You know, well, I mean, our parents are immigrants. So they came here with virtually nothing when they came here and built themselves up. So I can't betray that living the American dream and going, okay, you know, dad broke his back as an engineer and building himself up, starting off as a dishwasher while in college to me being able to go, go to college and, and, you know, high school and everything else without, without the troubles that he had while he put himself through school and not pay honor to that. And the people that are going through that, whether they're immigrants or, you know, live in a blue collar uh, society or a primary blue collar society, I can't deny that at one point in time, our immigrant parents were in that world. Yeah. So, so you're looking out for your own back, uh, your own history and culture. Yeah. But like also now with this global pandemic that we're facing, you know, we realize that all our philosophical nonsense that we argue about is insignificant. You know, I mean, people to this day argue Assyrian, Chaldean, Aramean, or, you know, Syriac, which title they should use. And I'm like, we all speak Aramaic. We all speak, you know, God's language. We're all Christian. You know, I don't care what dialect you use. I don't care that, you know, this one's from Syria. This one's from Turkey. This one's from Iran. This one's from Iraq. This one's from Lebanon. That one's from Russia, you know, because we had people in diaspora that went over there. You know, at the end of the day, we're all speaking Aramaic. We're all speaking God's language. It might be a slightly different dialect, but, you know, we have way more in common to unite us than to divide us. And, you know, over in Sweden and Germany, I heard there was that argument between Sureroyo uh, TV and uh, some Assyrian channel, and they were arguing about the title and people over there are arguing with each other. That's insignificant right now, man. We got to worry about our health. We got to worry about... Our, our spirituality, we got to worry about physical health, mental health, all that. That's more important right now. 
and and what I appreciate about you is like, you know, you do the job all of us wish we had, <laughs> right? We all wish yeah. we could like get paid to watch stuff and then talk about what we think about it. <laughs> um, but actually in talking to you, it's, it's not, it is work. It, it is. takes time and energy and effort. It happens to be work you're passionate about. How would you encourage people who have not found the thing that they're passionate about? You know, we're in quarantine right now. I mean, everything is available to you at the touch of your finger, whether on your phone, tablet, computer, desktop, laptop, you know, what makes you happy? Yeah. You know, if you're happy being a farmer, God bless you, be a farmer. You know, you want to be a nurse. You know, um, we have this joke. Every Assyrian tells it, Persians, Arabs, Lebanese, Egyptians, you know, Israelis, they all tell the same, you know, they all have the same joke. You're either a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, or the shame of the family, <laughs> you know? And I just happened to be the shame of the family that uh, ended up doing what I enjoy. Yeah, so I normally don't do this on the Assyrian podcast, but I would love to invite you Mm -hmm. to be a critic of the Assyrian community at large. This oh. is your chance. And you can go with that any, obviously any direction, positive, negative feedback, whatever. Let's, we are going to ask a real true life critic to be, mm -hmm. be a critic of the Assyrian nation. Okay. Um, this is funny because I had this conversation with Joe this morning. What Assyrians, Chaldeans, Arameans, Sururoyo, whatever title you want to use. And they're going to get so mad at me for saying this because they've been brainwashed so much, you know, for blaming Hudaya for everything. We have to follow the Israeli model. Go into your Old Testament and we have the 12 tribes of Israel. And then like us, they went into a diaspora, right? And they were spread all over the world, same way we are. We were driven out of our homeland. They were driven out of our home. We were driven out of our homeland. So were they. But the difference, what they did was when they got the chance to reunify, they understood their tribalism and what tribes they belonged to. But they gave up on being tied to, I'm only Daniel. I'm only Reuben. I'm only Jacob. I'm only Benjamin. I'm Levi. That's it. We need to do that. They picked a uniform dialect. So the Ashkenazi Eastern European dialect of Hebrew versus the Mizrahi Middle Eastern dialect of Hebrew versus the Sephardine Western European North African dialect of Hebrew. The Ashkenazi and the Sephardine, it was, I'm sorry, the Ashkenazi and the Mizrahi was the easiest to learn and understand the Sephardic one. So the Sephardic one is the official dialect of the Israeli government. It's the official dialect of the Israeli military. But at home, you want to speak French, Spanish, you know, Sephardine, because you're Sephardine. You want to speak Mizrahi, Arabic, Farsi, you know, that dialect of Hebrew. You want to speak German, Russian dialect of Hebrew at home, whatever. Have at it. But when you come to the government and when you come to the military and when you come to school, there's one official dialect. So we need one official Assyrian dialect. And it's not who the majority is, because if the Israelis did that, it would have been the Ashkenazi dialect because they're the majority. It has to be the one that's easiest for everybody to learn from Lebanon to Russia. Minimizing the tribalism, I think, is a big thing. Not denying if you're Umejnaya, Tiranaya, whatever else. Don't ever deny that. 
you know, but understand that like, yes, that's a part of you. And there's certain aspects of being from, from your tribe that's important to your regional culture, but there's also the more unifying, you know, Suraya, the languages are our big unifier. Um, stop arguing about church. I don't care if you're Catholic or Orthodox or Protestant or whatever else, or Nostornai, and you want to be given a title because of this. Church is church. You know, you, government is government. You know, that's the best thing about the United States is the separation of church and state. You know, you have your patriarch. This one has their pope. That one has their pastor. That's fantastic. You know, that's Wednesday, Friday, Sunday. <laughs> and also... Stop bullying your children into only three fields. We're all creative people. Um, the big one is uh, I, there's so many Assyrian artists, musicians, and everything else, but they only treat it as a hobby. It's feasible to have a career. Look at F. Murray Abraham. We brought him up earlier. He's an Oscar winner. He's a Tony Award winning actor. But do we see him in the Assyrian community? No, because probably along the way he got told, ah, whatever, you know, wasting your time time with this theater stuff. And then everybody knew him when he made it. Uh, Andrei Agassi is the prime example for our generation. His dad's Assyrian, his mom's Armenian. Early on, his dad, you know, went to all the Assyrian communities and said, hey, the kid's got a propensity for tennis. And every Assyrian looked at him and was like, eh, we play soccer. Is that true? Yeah. How do you know that? I've talked to people, you know, all over and the story coincides from cousins and people that know his his relatives. And that's why Agassi keeps only saying he's Armenian because the Armenians were like, yeah, sure. You know, we're all for him being successful in sports. Mm -hmm. You know, Armenians are a lot more unified than we are. They don't have their church arguments as their identifying factor. They're like, oh, you're Armenian from Armenia, uh, Iran, Syria. Like my my friend Jimmy is Armenian from Turkey and his fiance is Armenian from Iran. Dialectically, eh, they understand each other about 60%. But you know what? She's Armenian. He's Armenian. They're happy. Their wedding's in September. I'm invited. And, you know, I'm going to go celebrate their wedding. So we got to do stuff like that. You know, it's like we can't do that whole, oh, you're from over there. I don't want to talk to you. Right. Tribalism. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's good in a sense because it kept us alive for so long. Yeah. But tribalism will also be our, our biggest downfall and the cause of our extinction if we don't move away from it. So I appreciate that critique. And now, in closing, um, <laughs> after I... I've insulted the whole community and shunned everyone. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, time to cut this interview now. Um, we'd love to close the podcast mm -hmm. by asking a word of encouragement or inspiration. If you could say one thing to all Assyrians everywhere. What would you say? Let your creativity flow. Whether you're a painter, whether you're a musician, whether you're a poet or a writer, even if you're an engineer or a farmer or a mechanic, you know, because I go to those car shows and there's a lot of art in those cars, you know, be willing to express yourself and don't judge each other because we express ourselves differently. Also, honor our arts. We had a history of art, intellectualism, theology. You know, don't forget who we are, but create something new to keep us alive. That's the big thing. And I want us to survive. 
you know, from a theological standpoint, you know, we're the hand of God and we need that bridge between Assyria and Egypt with Israel being his third. And we can't be at the base of one bridge if we no longer exist. So continue the traditions and stand on the shoulder of giants. All right. Well, thanks for being on the Assyrian podcast. Thank you for uh, having me. We're going to direct everyone who listens to it to your Instagram, RC Samo. And that's my personal one. Yeah. Fanboynation.com. Assyrian artists, please send me stuff for review of Assyrian stuff. I review a ton of international films. And anytime there's something from the Middle East or Middle Eastern people, I almost never get it. And I'm like, I'm one of you. You know, let's let's do this. Um, cool, and bro. No, I, yeah, no, I'm not trying to alienate anyone. I want all of us to to be uplifted and to just be 5% better than what we give every day. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the episode and feel inspired to go out and maybe take that step you were hesitant on taking towards your goal or reactivate something you were once passionate about. Just want to say we also appreciate the last few reviews that people have left on iTunes over the last week. So if you could take a minute after this to rate and review us as well, wherever you listen to us, we'd really appreciate it. We love reading what you have to say. Thanks again and see you next week.